attention architects, and creative minds. Get ready to supercharge your brand with Build Your Brand, the podcast that's unlocking the secrets of branding success for creatives. Hey there, it's Mark Arlapage, founder of Entree Architect, and I'm inviting you to join my friend, architect marketing expert, Jeff Eccles at Build Your Brand Podcast, where he explores the captivating stories of the world's top brands and transforms their lessons into powerful moves for small firm architects and creatives like you. In season one, Jeff shares the thrilling tale of Southwest Airlines, where he dissects their journey to the summit and distills it into strategies tailor-made for you. It's important to keep in mind that companies like Southwest compete in the real world, just like you, and face real-world challenges, just like you. You might be surprised at how similar those challenges are to the struggles that you grapple with on a day-to-day basis. Don't miss out on your blueprint for success. Subscribe, tune in, and let's build your brand together. You may have noticed that the very best brands in the world are also known for having somewhat unique corporate cultures. That's often the glue that holds everything together when they encounter those rough spots. We don't do it because it inconveniences the passengers to whom we are primarily dedicated, the short haul, uh, frequent flyer. Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Build Your Brand today. Remember, no matter the size, the journey's the same. Your brand's journey to the top starts here. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this episode. BQE Core is the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Learn more at bqe.com. Context and Clarity has been called a community-based pro-practice masterclass for architects. It's awfully high praise, but since we began this journey back in April of 2020, we've certainly grown into a community of small firm architects, all focused on what matters most to their success. And by the way, it doesn't matter if you're the employee of a firm that's dreaming of going out on your own, or you've owned your own firm for 26 years. There's something here for everyone. And that's where you come in. Thanks for listening and welcome to the Context and Clarity Podcast. Every week, we have a conversation with an expert or a thought leader on things that matter most to the success of architects just like you. Then we go backstage with someone from our community and we talk about what we learned what our biggest takeaways were, and how we're going to apply what we heard to our own businesses. Hey, Context and Clarity community. We've reached midsummer, and we're taking a couple of weeks off. But I didn't want to leave you without a podcast episode because you might be traveling or sitting by a lake or on a beach, and you might want something to listen to. So we're bringing back one of the most requested past episodes of Context and Clarity Live. This conversation is with Christine Williamson. If you don't know her, Christine is the founder and the host of the Building Science Fight Club. She's trained as an architect, and she's leveraged her passion for building science into a new way to both support the profession, but also give us better, healthier places to live and work. I think what's interesting about this conversation is that We didn't just talk about building science, but also about how architects get information, how you're trained, 
and how you learn. All that being said, I thought this was a great conversation with Christine and worth bringing back. So I hope that you enjoy it as much as I did. Christine Williamson, welcome to Context and Clarity Live. Hey, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for joining us today. I I wanted to start the conversation today, I think, by asking why Building Science Fight Club? What do you mean why? Like the name or the concept itself? The whole concept. The whole concept. The whole concept. I mean, it really started as a... um, so Instagram's a photo sharing app, or that's what I understood of it. I mean, I'm sure there's much more to it. Uh, I mean, there certainly is much more to it now, but um, but uh, it's a photo sharing app. And what we do is very visual. And when I, my, my career path kind of diverged from my classmates in architecture school and that mine had more of a, I was certainly on site, on job sites a lot more. And I had a, a focus on, the more technical aspects of architecture in terms of how physically stuff gets put together uh, in in the field. And a lot of my classmates just didn't get that. And as I was learning this too, it's very hard to learn this. You feel um, really in over your head a lot. And so as I'm learning this and teaching myself and learning from other people, um, I thought I would get questions from my classmates who were also struggling, but they weren't in the same position as I was in order to be able to actually answer those questions. They were just relying on what their colleagues would tell them, and hopefully their colleagues were right, or their principal, or whatever. And um, anyway, so I'd get questions from them, and I thought, you know, wouldn't it be kind of cool if, as I'm learning, as I'm learning this stuff, like as I'm learning it, uh, what if I were to post, take photos on my job sites, and like, you know, mark them up, just this kind of stuff I'd put on a site visit report and say stuff like this is the flashing or, or whatever it might be with a really brief technical description uh, about what it is that I'm seeing and uh, to help sort of fill that, fill that site project experience gap that a lot of architects experience, particularly early in their careers. But it also continues because you don't, uh, I think the way the, profession is organized a lot of architects really don't end up learning stuff in the field at the same pace as they learn other skills and consequently feel kind of outmatched right it's like this gap where their their confidence their experience their um, level of knowledge in all of these other areas it is just growing exponentially particularly at the beginning of their careers and and then there's this giant gaping hole that feels kind of significant, like how we actually build stuff. Feel everybody kind of thinks that's important, and uh, to have that not that experience and that knowledge not grow at the same pace as the other learning that uh, occurs in this profession. So anyway, I started doing it really for friends. It was I was learning myself, and it was this spirit. It, you know what it is? It was studio culture. It was it, it was exactly studio culture, but in the real world. And it was, so how can I, how can I sort of help my friends? And um, it became sort of bigger and bigger. And then it wasn't just my friends. It was their friends and their friends' friends. So now it's, now it's pretty big. Now, of course, it's gotten a lot more. Um, I've invested from all kinds of 
weird twists of fate and life have uh, permitted me to invest more in the in the project as it became more successful and bigger anyway. So it's quite a bit more formal now. It's not just me snapping photos and marking them up. I put a lot of thought into it. It's more like writing a newsletter or an article or something like that. It's a each post is its own project, but um, but it's pretty fun. So yeah, that's that's how it started. It was pretty pretty humble beginnings, and I mean, it still is now. It's uh, here. It's me and my staff of disobedient little pooches who <laughs> don't contribute very much to the to the project. But um, you know, that's how a lot of fun things happen. I think. Yeah. Well, I think it's interesting, you know, talking about your friends and then the friends of your friends. And it's, it struck me as you were saying that this tracks almost exactly like Fight Club, the movie, right? So. Oh, right. I, haven't, yeah. I haven't seen the movie yet, everybody. So. Oh, it's good. So in relation to your social media, people will have a lot of questions about that. Like, you know, Pam wants to know who are most of your followers. They, uh, a contractor told me about it. So are they architects? Are they contractors? Are they homeowners or they just so they're mostly they're mostly architects and architects in training um although there's a lot of contractors and builders uh some kind of geeky homeowners who i love (laughs) love i love uh i love people who geek out on their homes and get into this stuff uh it started so it, it started with my actual friends so definitely architects in training. I don't think any of us were i'm still not licensed i don't think my friends were licensed at the time that i started the account maybe one or two of them. This was, um, you couldn't even, there's a lot of, uh, obviously there's been lots of changes with NCARB and the order you can take these exams and all kinds of stuff, but I don't think any of my friends were licensed even close to graduation. So, so it was architects in training for the most part. And then um, I suppose beyond that contractors kind of latched on at the, at the beginning, but um, I kind of, it's tempting in social media world to live by sort of social media rules instead of what maybe might come more naturally to in-person communities. And in that, like at the, at the very beginning when people were starting to, to follow the account and it was getting more attention, you're sort of tempted to speak to the audience that's there rather than to the people that you want to speak to or that you're like, I have a particular area of interest and expertise and I'm certainly comfortable speaking to contractors and I like contractors a lot, but I don't really think that uh, contractors and builders have the same needs when it comes to architectural education that architects do. Architects are approaching this from a really different perspective and I really think that they're underserved in adult education. And um, so I wanted to... uh, I guess it just, I don't, I don't know if somebody told me this. I can't remember if I just did it, but I just said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to speak. So the, there was a point where it was, the account was more popular among builders. And I was like, well, I'm just going to speak as though I'm speaking only to architects and we'll just see what happens. And then um, uh, gradually, then suddenly, like, like lots of things in life, the audience is definitely dominated by architects and architects in training now, which is good because I think, I think our needs really are different in the field i the example i like to give is that like a contractor might prefer a solution to a particular problem that is more labor intensive but less expensive Mm -hmm. and an architect might prefer because the contractor is in control of what's happening on the job site and can say 
okay, I understand what you're saying. I understand what we're trying to achieve. And I know how to do that. I can do that. I'm capable of that. I know my capabilities. Whereas a, um, a contract or an architect doesn't have the same amount of control on a job site. And when we're making design decisions, we're often doing it before we even know who the contractor is or what kind of client this, this person is going to turn out to be. So we might favor a design solution to a problem that's maybe a little bit more expensive, but more reliable from a labor and installation uh, perspective. And it's important to acknowledge that and to, and to, I think, teach in that way. Architects have a different, and designers in general, have a different role. And I, I don't know too many people who really acknowledge the importance of that, of that difference. Um, so that's one of the, one of the things I, I seek to specifically address for architects. Not, um, I mean, it's not, sometimes I think people maybe misunderstand. They think like when I, I have a course that I teach for architects, and I think sometimes people misunderstand. It's like, well, is there, could a builder take it? Could a homeowner take it? Well, yeah, of course you can take it. But the, it's really directed for the responsibilities and background of this particular community. And it's not, it's not meant to deliberately exclude anyone. It's just meant to address these particular, these particular needs. That's a, I, I know when I say this, I'm in danger of going down my own rabbit hole here, but I think that's a really important branding message for architects. Um, I talk about ideal client all the time. Don't spend any time, right? Don't spend any time in, in the branding and marketing world. Yeah, we're talking about attracting the ideal client, et cetera. But what you're talking about is providing content for, and and that's the parallel is don't spend any time trying to attract your non-ideal client, someone that's not your ideal right. client, produce and speak to and design for and all of those things specifically for your ideal client. And if that excludes others, fine, but at least you're serving your ideal and that's the important part. So, or the important point. So I really applaud, uh, that approach because it's, um, you know, it's, I, I forget, I looked it up this morning, 72 or 74,000 followers on Instagram. 74. 74, there you go. 74,000. It seems to be attracting the right people at this point. (laughs) Yeah, I think so. I, I think so. It's really, I'm really, delighted by the by the community and the people who ask really great questions and provide really good comments it's um you know it's not a perfect platform for that particular community so there's some real limitations to it but it's also really unexpectedly uh rich in in the type of learning that you might you might really not expect it from social media which is so funny right because like I remember back before social media, before really even the internet, and I, I remember being in school like a kid and hearing about the, not a kid kid, but whatever, old enough to know stuff. And I was so confused, like the information superhighway, what? I, did, I just didn't understand the imagery to that. And, but I remember like, that's what people sold the internet as. It was, you know, people, you'll be able to read any book from all across the world and uh, it'll connect you to all these great ideas. And of course the internet is, turned out to be that and a whole lot of other messy, crazy <laughs> right. stuff. But yeah. I think there's some really cool 
opportunities out there for genuinely enriching experiences and for for a, a whole lot of people instagram still on that so that's kind of nice but i also started doing this via email too so if anybody not really not everybody is on instagram and that's i get that um so i started emailing the same posts that i um that i post once a week via email and it was sort of funny the first week i did it i got a really nice note from an architect i thank you so much I'm on Instagram, but only one of my offices is on Instagram. And I love at least being able to, like, I, I'm reading the same post, but I'm reading it from my computer screen rather than my, my phone. So I look more productive in, the, in my <laughs> office. So anyway, um, plus it's bigger. People can take a little bit more time with it. Um, anyway, it's a, yeah, yeah. it's a fun little thing. I'm, I'm, I'm still enjoying it. I'm, not to scare people, but there's certainly, it takes a long time for me to do this. And I'm not sure that I'll be able to keep it up for, I mean, I'm certainly will not be able to keep it up in its current form forever and ever, but, um, but no plans on stopping anytime soon. So. Well, so that's, um, you know, that brings up a great point. What are you, what are you trying to accomplish? And is there an end game? You know, is, is there something, is there something bigger even, or, or maybe even bigger than yourself in, in your goals for building science fight club? Uh, I mean, I have a, I have a lot of goals. I'm not a particularly great businesswoman. So some people have asked me this, including like family members who love me and want me to be successful and happy and stuff. They'll, they'll ask me questions about that. And I feel like just through the questions, I'm like, oh yeah, I have not thought this through. So um, some of this is really just instinct. I do what is fun for me and it's been fine so far. So that's good. But no, at, at, the, the, at the outset, it really was sort of an educational, helpful hobby. And it, it would help other people, which I, I like very much, but it also helped me in that when you're teaching a concept to someone else, you really do learn it in a different way yourself. And a big part of my business now as then is, I mean, really all of us are in the business of communicating concepts about things that don't necessarily yet exist in the physical world yet. And so being a better communicator about complex things is a helpful thing. So I was getting that out of it. I was, um, and I was helping other people so it seemed like a pretty harmless, fun diversion. Like a, if I'm going to use social media anyway, this is a pretty good way of doing it. Um, so that's, that's how it really started. And then uh, now, of course, it's like, it takes me, somebody else asked, I could see in the, in the chat, like how long do these posts take? Like probably between 10 and 20 hours per post now, which is, I can't keep doing that for fun. That's not... Uh, a forever a model. Now, what I have found is, so I started doing that when I was, um, so I've been, I'm an immigrant to the United States. I'm Canadian. And I came to the U.S. for college and have always been on some sort of work visa or another that I would have to renew. But um, I guess just about three years ago, I married an American. And through marriage, I was finally able to apply for a green card. And um, so I applied for a green card, and there's, it, this is a much longer, less interesting, very complicated story, but um, it resulted in me 
knowing that I would not be able to work for a period. This is not true for every immigrant. It's true for some, and it was true for me. But I, I had this like almost year long period where I was not allowed to make money. I could work. <laughs> I couldn't make money though. And so I took, um, couldn't be paid or I, like, I couldn't be on a salary. Anyway, I didn't have authorization and you're never really sure how long this period is going to be before you get approval and all this other stuff. Anyway, and you can actually sort of see, you can guess where this transition happened if you're scrolling through my Instagram feed, because I ended up having the time to really make this, uh, make a bigger commitment to the Instagram feed. But it wasn't so much, I wasn't deciding like, okay, I'm going to commit to growing an Instagram feed for the sake of having a large following. It was really this belief that, like I said before, that continuing education for architects is really not very in my view, helpful or well-developed in a lot of ways, particularly in the building science side of things. Um, in that most of it, I think, is really, we outsource it to materials manufacturers. So the majority of the education after our formal education in school, our uh, you know, professional education is really developed by these materials manufacturers. And they actually do a pretty good job of it, I think, a lot of them do, but they, I believe they can't be our own, that only voice or that the only option for us. And I think that a big part of why a lot of these educational materials are not really reaching architect practicing professionals in a really good way is because they're not developed for that purpose. They're developed for, you know, they're, these educational things are a mar part of a marketing effort. Yeah. And I thought, well, what if, what if I pursued education as its own good and I treated it like its own business? So what if I made my job during this time where I can't make money anyway? What if I treated teaching in this professional capacity? What if I treated that as a job? What would it look like to teach architects if you could actually not, um, you know, because we're all billing by hour. A lot of us do hourly billing and stuff. So I was in that hourly model for so long. And I could only, if I were going to, if I, I did teach before when I was doing regular consulting work, but I could only devote the number of hours to prepare for a presentation that the payment justified, right? It was, what was my fee for the speaking engagement divided by my billable rate? Like that's, so whatever that, if it's six hours, that's all I had to prepare six hours like and I would try to actually be disciplined enough to stay within that because otherwise you everybody everybody know listening knows this on the billable oh you're like a slave to your timesheet it's terrible anyway so I thought well what if I didn't have to do that anymore and I and then I had this opportunity to not do that anymore I couldn't make money anyway so what if I what if I invested what I not based on what the billable rate called for but what I'd believed the content demanded the actual like what would it actually take to produce something better uh what would it look like so that's what I did I sort of gave myself a an unpaid internship for a year thanks to the U.S. Department of Homeland Security and um that's that's when Building Science Fight Club got a lot more um got a lot more polished but the idea was also to use that to use that content in other in other ways and to teach in other settings. Um, so I uh, during that time I was posting on Instagram, but I was also developing a, a course, a curriculum to teach architects. Um, when I came back to when I was allowed to work, so I launched that about six months ago, last Thanksgiving or so, 
And, um, and it's been really successful, but it had to be for me, it had to be on demand because I still, I really like what I do. So I still wanted to be able to actually consult. I, I love teaching, but I wanted something that was a resource that wasn't just dependent on my hours, right? On my availability. Um, so that's sort of how that happened. Now I forget what your original question was, but that's, <laughs> that's what I do. Well, it, it was, it was, it was kind of about the, the goals, you know, what, what the future is, but, but, you know, you just said a couple of really, well, a lot of really interesting things, but there are a couple of things that, that stand out uh, right now uh, up on the screen. There's a question that Erica asked. She says, is there, uh, are you able to monetize your social media popularity in any way? And what I would, I, th that that's definitely an interesting question. What I would also say is, or ask is, are you monetizing the actual social media and or is the the Instagram, is it driving some other ROI, like people to the course that you mentioned a minute ago, or even to clients? Yeah, so consulting. Two, two things. So the consulting business, the, when I, I knew that I wanted to consult on my own privately, so that was my first sort of I think a lot of a lot of us professionally have that long-term goal is to be independent, have your own firm. And so that was mine too. And my number one fear with that, like anybody who starts a business like that, is where am I going to get clients? Yeah. Am I going to be, you know, so I start my business and then and then nobody calls. <laughs> You're like, great. <laughs> um, so that was my biggest fear. And that turned out not to be a problem for me. I think even absent having a large Instagram following, but I do not do the Instagram to get clients for consulting. I I learned that as a one a sole practitioner, I don't I don't actually need that many jobs to to I mean, I guess if I'm trying to have launched this empire, if my goal were to get really rich, this would not be my strategy. But if my goal is to do what I like and earn an, and earn an income and run and have the independence of, of running my own business. Um, I did not, I don't need the Instagram as a promotional vehicle for that at all. Um, so, so that was something that was sort of surprising that I didn't, I didn't know about before in terms of monetizing the Instagram account. I really do not want to do that. I'm about that. I, um, I think if I were a younger person, I would be, I'm so, I'm actually really glad that I'm not, I have a birthday coming up in like a month and I'm, very delighted to have some of the really good things that come with age because I think you sort of a lot of times if you have some sort of talent or skill or opportunity you assume that you have to take it and this isn't yes having a large Instagram account a following is an opportunity but you don't have to take it and I'm I'm not that's not uh that is not a good fit for my personality I, I'm not uh, it doesn't make me happy. It make the, even thinking about it now makes me feel sort of stressed out. Um, and also I just don't, it's, I just don't want to do that. I don't want the, that plays into more of the sponsorship model, the corporate sponsorship model of education. And I really just, I, I want to do something different. And I think it's very hard to maintain your credibility when your content is directly sponsored by, materials manufacturers. Now I have thought it would be cool if I could get non-architectural sponsors for the Instagram account. Like, I don't know if American Not Express safe. wants to sponsor Building Science Fight Club, that would be fine. They could write yeah. me a check. I'd be very happy. Um, or Whole Foods brought to you by Whole Foods. We could have like a, 
a trade maybe like <laughs> i can I, I maintain a trade deficit with with whole foods every <laughs> every week but um anyway so i really value my independence and uh i don't yeah, so I'm I'm just not interested in in doing that, and I don't think so. I don't think it would be enjoyable. I don't think I would. I just, and I don't think it'd be that profitable, honestly, for what it would take. That it would t- it would require me to be a diff to run a, the kind of business that I don't actually want to run. I don't want to be a social media. I don't want to run. I don't want to have the most successful Instagram social media account for among architects. It's not the business I want to start. Not that there's anything wrong with that business, but that's not. I, I don't, I don't want to do that. I, I want to, I like teaching. So I want to teach. Um, now as a business decision, is that less, does it put me in a less successful position if I'm teaching my own classes? So architects are not receiving subsidized education. They're paying for it themselves. Uh, maybe, but I also think the things that you invest in yourself are in a lot of ways more valuable to you. So it makes me really, really proud to have put a lot of effort into developing a curriculum that I ask architects for $750 for of their own money. Most of us are in small firms and it's not like, you know, Gensler's paying the bills for all of us for, for this kind of stuff. And to hear that individual architects running their own businesses find that their practice is positively influenced by a class that they took from me i just you couldn't even pay me a better compliment and they're not just paying the money it's 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 like a 10-hour course they're investing 10 hours with me of their own time and to to hear that that's actually been genuinely beneficial for people i i'm just so proud of that and um that's a i certainly hope that it's very very successful and i think that there's a there's definitely a business case for for doing it. I don't think it's unreasonable for a sizable percentage of the registered architects in the United States to take my course um, over the next 10 years. If you know there's 115,000 or 120,000 registered architects in the US and a bunch of others like me who are in the profession and designers but not licensed yet, if I don't think it's unreasonable that five or 10% of them over the next 10 years would, would take a course from me. Um, and that's a pretty good that's a pretty good model for me. That's, that's pretty nice. Um, apart from, apart from sponsorship. So anyway, so no, I haven't monetized it. I'm sure it, like, it certainly doesn't hurt having a big following, um, in particularly, and I don't know what the post COVID world is going to look like and materials manufacturers, I'm certain will pay me. They did this before to speak at specific conferences and I will very happily take money to do that. But, um, the, the idea isn't, the idea is, still very educational and so like a, like a lot of architects right entree architects how many of your members are looking to start an empire and how many of them are really just trying to run a business they like to run and have a nice quality of life and spend some time with their kids and uh, pursue other interests and hobbies that are important to them and have a full life let's take a quick break to share more about our sponsors systems and standard operating procedures You already know that's how to build a profitable business and find the freedom that you want. You need systems and procedures, but you struggle with choosing which systems you need the most and how to implement those systems quickly so that you can get back to doing what you love to do the most. 
The Designing Your Business Masterclass series was created by acclaimed architect and business consultant, Douglas Teeger, FAIA, to help fellow architects and engineers run their firms more profitably while maintaining a healthy work-life balance. Douglas grew from a solo practitioner to becoming managing partner of his 30-plus person firm and then later sold his firm so that he can do what he does today, helping architects be more successful at Tiger Consulting. On the third Wednesday of every month, Douglas dives deep into an essential topic that will strengthen the profitability of your firm and make it sustainable for growth in the years to come. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass with Douglas Teeger at bqe.com slash masterclass. And then start implementing powerful systems for the profitability you need and the freedom you want. Every live masterclass session includes AIA continuing education credit. And when you visit bqe.com slash masterclass, you'll have access to the full library of past sessions on demand. The Designing Your Business Masterclass is free. It's brought to you by our friends at BQE, the makers of BQE Core, the software that makes it easy to manage your projects and your people for maximum productivity and ultimate profitability. Register now for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass at bqe.com slash masterclass. That's bqe.com slash masterclass. And now let's get back to the conversation. What's the what's the percentage breakdown on that, Jeff? Empire versus good life. It, it's probably ninety nine percent good life. One. <laughs> I don't know. I go for Empire. I'm going to go for Empire. So <laughs> go for Empire. I'm well, glad so- to be Empire developers. I'm just not. <laughs> yeah. I, no, I, I want to be. We have to make choices. Friend. Yes, see, be my friend, I, but sure. I don't want to be you. <laughs> I I already see this playing out because what I hear Christine saying is she is never going to have a TikTok version of uh, building science fight club because that that would that would mean that she's having to create these TikToks all the time, which would not be all that different. But um, they have a better monetization strategy. But you're right; you would you would turn it you would turn your business into creating TikToks. Now Catherine already has a TikTok empire, so she's yeah. already starting to build her empire. There, so. I've been I've been neglecting my empire honestly <laughs> lately. So, but um, you know, people. My, I found my doctor is a TikTok. Like, has a bunch of TikTok. I I don't really understand the whole thing, but yeah. Anyway, that was well, pretty funny to see my actual like lab coat doctor with, uh, doing these dance video stuff. Anyway, it's not all—it's not all dancing. I'm just going to say that. But you know what, it's, people—he's well, a good dancer. So is he? What's his yeah, name? Yeah, he's great. I was very impressed. Well, I don't want to tell you. I don't want to. I don't want to. Well, call he's him TikTok that. famous already. So I mean, TikTok famous already. Well, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> now I'm just going to have to wonder if every doctor I see on there is your doctor. That's okay. Yeah. So people, people are. Um, They're all my doctor, Catherine. They're all mine. <laughs> <laughs> um. People are clamoring for a book of your content. Is that a possibility? Yes, it is. I, I definitely would like to write one. It's um, it's just I've, I'm sort of struggling to find my footing in terms of time management with this stuff where I still am running an actual business where I have actual clients that, that I should occasionally um, answer. And um, anyway, all this is to say, yes, 
I plan on doing a book, but um, I haven't found the time quite yet. <laughs> you know, you mentioned the course, right, for the emerging professionals or or some of these others. And so one of the things that we do with Context and Clarity is we start the conversation every morning at 9 a.m. on Clubhouse. And so we'll do a half-hour coffee talk on Clubhouse. And we sort of did a preview of this conversation this morning. The reason I like to do that is uh, because I hear from the audience in real time in their voice um, what they really care about, what they really want to know about the topic of the day. And so we started that conversation this morning and someone asked, and I apologize, I forget who asked this question. I think it was actually a couple of people asked the same or similar question, which was something like, um, what's, what's the big gap or what's the typical gap, right? You see, um, no matter where they go to school, there you go. What are the big gaps understanding in, in understanding that architects have, right? They come out of school, a BARC or an MARC or, you know, whatever their curriculum was, what's the gap between what they learned in school and what they really know? It can obviously be filled with a 10 hour course. It gives you 12 <laughs> HSW learning units, but, but, but what, what do you think that gap typically is? So what they're missing is a framework for understanding for how they're going to go about their, their professional practice, really. And this has to do with building science, but other stuff as well, too. So you have a design education, but you don't really understand building science. That's one thing. And don't really understand how things get built, like how a job is. I mean, you learn it sort of in school, but you don't you don't appreciate it till you see it. Uh, so how is a job, uh, the contractor doesn't actually build it himself, the contractor or herself or what, these are teams, right? The general contractor is basically like a coordinator. They're not, they're not swinging the hammer. They're, they're also administrators. GC is an administrator, has, has a big administrative role and they assign that work to subcontractors and who actually do the work and they do it in a specific order and understanding both building science and essentially the, the division of labor among trades is, are, are, I think, the really, really big gaps. And what's helpful is you don't learn those things overnight. What's, what I think a lot of architects are operating without is a framework for understanding information related to those topics. And the example I give people is, like, you will pick this stuff up in professional practice. People do all the time. and you depending on who you are do a pretty reasonable job of it over over a career but you're still kind of it's a little bit like going on a vacation abroad and picking up a phrase book for a foreign language and you can you can learn some sentences in a foreign language to get by in your foreign country on a vacation and and do pretty well but if you actually had a framework if you had a, a grammar and an understanding of, of a basic understanding of the language, well, then you can start to actually express original thought and to really communicate rather than just playing from a, from a phrase book. And I think a lot of people, a lot of, a lot of practicing architects and architects in training are, are still working off of their, frame, their, their phrase book and they're finding that inadequate because 
you know, you get, you try to have a conversation and you can only answer, like there's a very limited number of questions you know how to answer with your phrase book. Uh, and you, and you really, and you certainly have a, a difficult time expressing original thought and building science and the course I teach anyway, or and even, in, even the individual Instagram posts try to help develop a, a framework so that afterwards, like once you have the framework, afterwards, you're just expanding your vocabulary. And you get to be, it facilitates creativity rather than, rather than most, I think most practicing professionals experience building science and constructability issues as, as constraints and, uh, and, and things that limit their creativity. But if you, if you have this framework, it's just like a language and it's, it starts being part of the, part of the background. You start, you start seeing the, the poetry of something and, and enjoying the poetry of something rather than like saying subject, verb, like <laughs> whatever. Um, it, becomes, it becomes natural. So I think that's, so what's missing? I think a framework for understanding both building science and um, the division of labor among, among the trades is, um, is missing and that it's leaving a lot, of, a lot of really talented and smart people to try to do the best they can by picking it up as they go along, by basically just memorizing stuff. And that's a very, very slow and difficult way to learn. As, as someone that once used the phrase books to get <laughs> to the point of ordering gelato in Venice outside of St. Mark's, um, I really appreciate that analogy. <laughs> but yeah, it was really yeah. good gelato, though. Um Always worth it in the end. <laughs> yeah. What, um, so with, with all of that, what advice would you have? Let's just say if there's someone watching or someone that watches this in the, in the future or listens to the podcast version of this in the future that maybe they're in school now, or maybe they just graduated. Maybe they're studying for the ARE. I don't know. It's a young person. Let's just say it that way. What advice do you have for them to prepare themselves? You know, as, as you were describing that, I, I grew up around construction, you know, as family and friends. And so I worked construction jobs and I spent a lot of time on job sites as a teenager and things like that. So I feel like I've got an advantage or, or had an advantage when I actually uh, worked in, in architecture. But um, what, would you, what would you recommend for a young person that maybe wants to accelerate or enhance their education? I think the number one, so from a practical perspective, purely practical perspective, my, the best advice is to learn the names of things. Mm. Go order all those books from Francis Chang and go through them in your spare time, flip through. It doesn't have to be this, this giant endeavor, but learn what things are called. And if you know the names of things, you start to actually see them differently. Like, you probably do not see a soffit until you know the name of a soffit. I mean, you, of course you've seen it, but you haven't really seen it. You don't know the, you don't, you don't have a language for it. There's also like, actually, if you're sort of interested in, in language and linguistics as I sort of am, um, not in any kind of disciplined way, but um, there's really interesting philosophies sort of tied, tied to that, knowing the name, having, having words to express thoughts and actually being able to think them as being connected. I think it's this sapir Whorf hypothesis. Anyway, the division of linguistics is kind of interesting. Um, Orwell talks about it a lot too, where if, you're, if your language is sloppy, it leads to sloppy thoughts. 
Um, anyway, totally different, but learn the names of things in architecture. And that's something that you can start doing no matter, no matter where you are in your, in your studies or your ARE path or, or whatever. Um, and that I find particularly enriching. You start seeing things differently. Um, so that's something I would do that's pretty simple. Um, cause once you start seeing things, the next step is thinking about how they're built. Um, how did that get there? What was there first? Like who installed that? Was it the same person who installed the thing that's next to that thing? The names of some of, of things is, um, is really helpful. I still do that. I still have the, I still have those because I still refer to them. I'm still learning the names of new things that I'm shocked. I just, and also, I, I'm sure people can share the, have that shared experience where you're like, how do I not know that? I've been doing this for like a decade. <laughs> Why did I never see that before? Yep. I'm always, I'm always worried about mispronouncing things that I should know. Like, you know, like a gunnel and a boat is, you, it's written out like gunswale, I think, or something like that. But if you said that around somebody who knows about I it, they just laugh that. at you. I never yeah, knew I don't that. Have to look up so I've probably been like seeing it written and thinking that it's right. That's a problem with seeing things written that oh. makes me feel like mumbling no, on the job site. Like that's the because <laughs> there's always well, a different. It seems like it's always a different. But there's so many. So I practice everywhere in in the U.S. and abroad too. Sometimes and it it is actually really funny where some people. That's one thing I'm really grateful for Instagram uh, for and just having a, a geographically diverse professional practice, which started before Instagram, uh, that gave me a lot more confidence because there, I would think that I was a moron for saying something wrong or, or saying something differently. And then I realized, no, you're not a moron. I just say it differently over here. Or somebody, I gave a presentation once, uh, or I was interviewed for, um, this old house about window installations. And, uh, and I kept calling it the flange of a window and, some some commenters were like it's a nailing fin and they were angry like really angry that i called it something that they didn't like or they weren't used to and i i know that that's not wrong i know that neither one is wrong but um because people call it different things in different places i prefer what i call it because because it's what i call it but no judgment but anyway, there's that there's that there's more than one name for something can be uh, can be a little trying. Yeah. This is this is where the fight club aspect comes in. <laughs> right. <laughs> yep, yep. Yeah. Nailing, Which nailing. people are not intended to take too literally. I asked people if I should change the name actually because I was a little um you know, it started as a totally as a joke and then it got really big and um I, I, I'd gotten a few sort of aggressive comments on, um, on Instagram and then, and people who had alluded to, um, to the, uh, well, it says fight club in the name. I mean, so it's totally, totally cool. And construction is pretty aggressive anyway. So it's not, I'm not, uh, this is stuff we're, we're used to spending time on sites. People, people get fired up. So that's, that's okay. But, um, but I thought, well, maybe I should change the name because I don't want to encourage like actual fighting. The, the point is to learn, but then have people, you're shaking your head. Jeff. People were overwhelmingly like, do not change the name. Like, I know it's a joke and also it's fun and playful. And um, it is good to have a sort of a, this, this word is overused. I think a lot, but a safe space to sort of hash stuff out among professionals. It's not in front of your boss, not in front of your clients, you know, uh, so you get to kind of duke it out a bit in a in a hopefully fun setting, if it comes to that. 
<laughs> I, I think that ought to be like a weekly lunchtime activity at most firms. They can they can hash it out like that. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. You talked about uh earlier that that you're you're serving clients, right? I mean that's that's ultimately your your consultant. So you have yep. you you have your practice and one of the things I think is really impressive on your website is the clarity of, you know, you, you basically explain what a building scientist does and you explain the, you know, why would you hire this and what would you expect? And, and, and it's real talk in, in my, 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 uh, translation, uh, my sum- summarization is that, uh, it's real talk. You know, this is what it is. This is what it means. Um, and I think that's very important. So kudos for all of that. And I know we had gotten some, some questions about one, where did you find the clarity for what you wanted to do and what you love, but also there you go, uh, from Jay, talk about how you arrived at such clarity around your fees as well. And that's a, that, that I think is probably where I was headed was, um, how did you, how did you boil it down to the point that it's so understandable, it's so approachable, and then also attach this fee to it? You talked about hourly before, and I love the fact yes, that you don't, yes. you don't have hourly. Um, I don't do hourly you know. anymore. Nope. Yeah. So can you, yeah, can you speak to that? I really don't like it. <laughs> yeah. I, I really, because I, th- I think hourly, first of all, it's, it depends on what your business model is. And for a lot of people, hourly billing remains the most uh, practical way of accounting for for your labor and running your business. So, okay, it's you've got to find a way to get paid. If that's what you have to do, that's what you have to do. Um, if you don't have to do it, though, don't don't think that you have to. So, I don't do it. I'm a sole practitioner, and I don't like to think of projects that way. And actually, I think most people don't either they the hourly fees are sort of supposed to keep you disciplined with stuff and maybe they do but most of us approach our work like look if I'm not proud of this and I've sort of maxed out the the budget I don't care like my sort of time budget I'm going to work at this until it until I'm proud of it and I'm gonna eat the I'm gonna take the hit on the hours so basically I'm not gonna put them on my time sheet um so whatever we do that all the time the games you the mental acrobatics that accompany most timesheets was just exhausting for me um so whatever i like a lot of people i hate hourly fees i try not to do it anyway um what i decided i wanted to do with consulting was that i'm pretty good at it and so i thought well i don't need to attract i don't have a staff to keep busy i don't have a lot of so i don't i don't need to take jobs that are smaller. I can take big jobs, demand a, a big fee, and then and tell people, like, you will not get a bill for 15 minutes for this. Like, phone calls are free. Like, everything is included. You, I want you to call me because when you call me to resolve something now, I don't want you to save up questions until you have enough for a phone call or whatever. We're going to work till we get it done. Because that's how we produce, like, that's how I was working anyway. I just wasn't being paid for it. So I ask for a bigger fee and people appreciate not being nickel and dimes. I think the the hourly model sort of encourages a certain amount of nickel and diming, 
like you nickel and dime your customers and then you train them to nickel and dime you. And I, I just really, I wanted to do that. So this is an experiment. I'm not, I'm not speaking as some expert here. Like I've been doing this for a year. I maybe it's worked out really well so far. Maybe it, maybe it won't long term. So we'll have to have this conversation again in a few years. But um, in terms of how I speak about my fee and about architecture fees in the industry in general on my website, that is where Instagram has actually really helped. I recognize that I have a lot of eyes on me, even outside of the architecture world. And what I wanted to do is I wanted to write about what hiring consultants was like and what clients should really budget for that kind of stuff. Not really for myself, but more as a service to the industry to sort of set expectations someplace. Like if you want to hire a good team, they cost money and you should be, the client should be prepared to, to pay them. And this, I think, I think the way I speak about it gives people reasonable expectations for what they can expect to budget for, for the type of help that they might need. And I wanted to also dispel the uh, idea, myth, whatever, that if an architect has to hire a consultant, that it means that they're not, that they're somehow not competent on their own. Architecture has a lot of different requirements to it. And it's not unusual for for somebody to, to, for a normal person, a human, to not be a specialist in all things. So. Um, so a, a, a client can hire, an owner can hire an architect for a whole bunch of reasons, uh, but not they should not expect their, their architect to be an expert in everything. And they should anticipate that the architect will require outside help for in particular contexts. And whatever, whatever that is for the, for the job it is, whether it's an acoustical consultant, a building scientist, they should, they should budget accordingly. And I really feel strongly about, about that, that it's not an... Having to hire extra extra help to address specific concerns in design is not a failure, does not indicate some inherent weakness on the part of the professional at all. It, in fact, it's smart. It's the professional smart enough to say, to understand their limitations and say, well, here's where we're going to spend some extra money. And, and it's sort of silly because we don't, I think I see this attitude in architecture, but I don't see it in like construction. Like nobody's surprised that the roofer doesn't also install the bathroom tile. You know, like <laughs> that's okay. And but somehow in architecture, your architect, the same architect who is going to design your your family room and your kitchen is also meant to be a specialist on attic ventilation rates. Like, come on. I it's it's okay to to collaborate and to to bring in help and and clients whether they're residential or commercial should be our, our buildings are very complicated and they should be prepared to put together a good team compensate them fairly and and then let them do wonderful work and 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 enjoy and appreciate the results but if you don't give your team the resources to actually solve the problems that you're asking them to solve, you're not going to get a good result. You're not going to get a good solution. So anyway, yeah. so that's what I, I, I'm really specific. Anybody listening, I'm very specific on my website about why you might need a building scientist. And it's written in a way I'm almost writing it. I'm, I'm kind of writing it for both of our clients. 
I mean, I'm writing it for an owner to see and to understand the process and I'm sort of priming them to, to open their wallets really. So um, I really wanted to convey that expertise costs money and that people should be prepared to, to pay for that. And for those of you that are listening, or, or well, even if you're in the live audience right now, uh, you can find that at Christine Dash or hyphen Williamson.com. That's a um, place that you can go and find all these things that we've been talking about here for the last uh, few minutes, and, and how Christine explains it, what the what the fees look like, and and things uh, like that. So check that out, Christine Dash Williamson.com. Thank you to BQE, the makers of BQE Core, for their support of this podcast episode. Visit bqe.com slash masterclass to register for the next Designing Your Business Masterclass. Well, what did you think? Did you hear something in there that you can use in your practice today? If you were so inspired by this conversation that you'd like to watch the entire Context and Clarity Live episode, head on over to the Entree Architect YouTube channel. There's a playlist there that has all of the full Context and Clarity live episodes. And if you want more of the Context and Clarity podcast delivered to you every week, give us a thumbs up and subscribe wherever you consume podcasts. If you like content like this, check out Gable Media. It's a multimedia network for people that care about the built environment. And it's the home of Context and Clarity. With Gable's growing family of podcasts and video channels, I know you'll find something there that interests you. You can learn more at gablemedia.com. That's G-A-B-L media.com. And one last thing before you go. If the topic of today's episode is of particular interest to you, join me over on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern inside the Entree Architect Community Facebook group. That's where every weekday at 4 p.m. Eastern, I host Context and Clarity Conversations, and we take topics like this, and we dig deeper. We have a conversation in real time to try to find more clarity around the things that matter most to you. So thanks for listening. I hope our time together has inspired you to think about your community and your practice and how you can support those around you. We'll be back here again next week, and in the meantime, I hope you'll join me and the Entree Architect community on Facebook today at 4 p.m. Eastern so that we can help each other find more clarity around the topics that matter most, no matter what your context is. I've mentioned it to my family, but in terms of telling people like, oh yeah, we're doing this, I'm looking for projects. You got anything? Yeah. I'm, I'm not there yet because it scares the out of me. Dreaming of launching your own architecture firm? Well, we'll buckle up for a wild ride with Emerging, the podcast that shares what it's really like to start an architecture firm. Where do we begin? We don't even know what type of business to formalize as. Is it an LLC? Is it an LLP? Like, how are taxes? I mean, the list is astronomical. Season one featured founders Jeffrey, Lexi, and Chris, owners of Level Studio Architecture, are your fearless guides on this unfiltered journey from napkin sketches to a thriving studio. One evening, stumbled into one last dive, we sat at the bar and pondered our postgraduate futures. Amidst the conversation, a napkin became the canvas for our aspirations, sketching plans and milestones, sealing our heartfelt commitment and shared dreams. 
in drawing down dreams on a napkin collectively that (laughs) then you know in your head you've rooted like oh i'm connected to these people like long term the process of starting an architecture practice brims with excitement and challenges demanding meticulous planning flawless execution and unyielding resilience i kind of hate the term because it's so overly used but i think everybody knows imposter syndrome and i think it's it's so real to this day i i I don't know if it's with everybody but with me i'm always questioning like us can we do this are we ready to do this are we prepared can we do it did we just decide a name (laughs) we did it guys one that came out of nowhere it came out of nowhere i liked it i saw it ready to turn your aspirations into reality Follow the link in the show notes to subscribe to Emerging and chart your own path to architectural success.